Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. In this bonus episode, we're sharing a discussion with Catherine Chandler, an assistant professor in the Culture and Politics program in the School of Foreign Service, Georgetown University, and author of Unmanning, How Humans, Machines and Media Perform Drone Warfare. Kate gave a talk titled A Crash History of Drone Futures in September 2020. This is the Q&A that followed, conducted live on Zoom with questions offered by the audience via chat. Thank you so much, Kate. That was really terrific. Um, and as you know, um, as someone whose work is much more centred on drones in the present and in their, um, and increasingly now actually in their kind of emergent form, I was struck repeatedly by the strange echoes between now and the, and the histories, which I think like speaks quite strongly to the proposition you started your talk with that to grasp at drone futures we need we actually really need to return to these histories because they tell us a lot about um uh, about how not just about how we arrived where we are but also about um what the kind of processes of the unfolding of what's to come um, might look like um uh, we're starting to get some questions um come in from the chat but before um but as people kind of compose those um i wanted to start um with the the crash um where you kind of ended before the before the kingsman um anecdote which i really enjoyed and i will take your word for it um about the about uh about the about the film and, and probably not um not actually watch it um <laughs> to start with the crash and um I'm particularly interested in the in the way uh, crashes have become uh, drone crashes have become spectacles, uh, particularly in the military context. You know, there's the the this sort of famous imagery of um, of Iranian soldiers, um, you know, parading uh, crashed American drones and so on. So I was wondering if you could say more about the about the crash and perhaps about what how you see its um, what you see as it, its its workings as a kind of figure. I think that how the crash is taken within the military context and by most people and how I want to read the crash are two different things. So let me quickly parse what I think is happening typically with the drones um, and also in the military industrial complex. It's clear to me that in the military industrial complex, they love drone crashes because it enables exactly the kind of futurity that they're interested in. The drone crashes show how we need technological improvement and we need technological fixes for the problems that are already happening. So I think it's really important to remember that right, military technologies because they're so much a part of the military industrial complex, right, necessarily have these problems baked into them that are continuously being fixed. And we can think about, there's all kinds of analogs for this in our own technologies, right? We need the newest apt update from Apple in order to make everything function, right? It keeps us dependent on the set of um, platforms and systems that we continue to use. And so the military is no different. Um, and so, 
they fully acknowledge their crashes, but they have a very different read of them, which is the crash means we need more technology. And I read the crash exactly the opposite, right? I see the crash as this moment where we see all the humans come running back in, right? So we have this moment where there's the beautiful drone flying over this like empty, barren landscape over and over and over again. Like when do we see the humans acting is when it crashes to pieces and they all have to go fix it together, come up with some kind of solution, pitch to people what needs to be done in order to improve it. And I think this is the moment where people can politically, ethically act and intervene, right? I think we can say, wait a second here, this is not the technology acting, these are people acting. Um, how might we do this differently? How might we act differently? And I mean, maybe the soldiers who pick up the drone and parade it around, um, that's maybe a part of that. Um, it's a common trope. A couple of US drones crashed in the 1960s over China and they were displayed by the Chinese as the sort of moment of, you know, reckoning with the kinds of military power. Um, and I've been told that, you know, foreign drones have crashed in the United States as well. We just haven't heard about them. So, um, so, so again, what if we thought about it though from this kind of sense of the detritus of drones rather than the, you know, all seeing mechanical object, um, which is always a part of the iconography. And, you know, I think James Bridell's work Mm -hmm. um, did a really great job of sort of dissecting that and showing us even this image that was being showed to us on the television news was actually a computer composite. So um, how do we take much more seriously the constructedness of that image? And like, if it is actually constructed, how can we become, reinsert ourselves into this process of putting it back together? Um, and, you know, inserting yourself into the military industrial complex is really hard. I, I'm totally unsuccessful at doing it. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's interesting where these things show up and where they emerge. My current positionality in the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, I'm actually quite surprised um, who I run into and who I end up talking to and, um, uh, you realize again that what seems as though it's like not a part of your everyday experience is actually a part of your everyday experience. In the chat, um, uh, Beworldism, which um, I'm, I have some guesses about who that might be, but uh, but but I won't um, speculate publicly, um, has uh, has just pointed out that you know re regarding this kind of cyclical nature of of drone development, which you've talked about here, but which I think the crash is really crucial to, right? Like test, crash, test, crash, hopefully crash less, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there's in the consumer drone market, there's rapid innovation going on right now. Um, and some of the key areas of, of development are around, um, uh, you know, collision detection and um, autonomous sensing of obstacles and so on in, in a way that is that is designed to like reduce the, the pilot error substantially. Um, and then yet on this, this development is also paired with um, geopolitical tensions that are rising um, in the world because, you know, as we know, the, the biggest uh, drone manufacturer in the consumer market is by some orders of magnitude is, is um, the Chinese company DJI. Um, so do you have thoughts on this relationship between uh, sort of the geopolitics um, and, the, and the crash perhaps, but also the emergence of, um, of consumer drones? So I think one thing that 
is worth pausing on and trying to parse a little bit and was part of what was built into the structure of my talk. Like I began with Reginald Denny, who really was just this like Hollywood star who loved model airplanes and wanted to sell them and wanted to promote model planes. And they became integral to this platform or this system that we're using today that you know has become the drone aircraft. Um, so I, I mentioned that because I think there is like a level of not just intentionalities, but I think there's plenty of very well-intentioned engineers who are doing really cool drone projects that are imagining really different ways of, you know, trying to use pilotless systems, autonomous systems. And there are unintended possibilities for their technologies that they may not be aware of, or they may be aware of, but think that the benefits uh, outweigh the possible risks. And then there's the geopolitics, which is a different set of actors, right? And so I think part of what I really saw in, in my project is like the engineers and the operators are one set of actors. And then there's this like administrative, bureaucratic, other set of actors who are like deciding who the enemies are, what kind of wars are gonna be waged and what's gonna happen. And then there's these like, they pick up what is synergetic with them and they leave aside the rest of the developments. Um, and a lot of times the projects transform beyond the sort of intentions for them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, Reginald Denny was really happy that his drone became part of the military industrial complex. So that's not an example of actually, but, but, I, but I think we can sort of wonder here about the ways in which tech, technologies of all kinds can be weaponized if we have geopolitical actors that really don't have anything necessarily to even do with the technologies that has to do with the warlike visions that they have for their country at this particular moment, right? Um, and I mean, I'm better positioned to sort of think about this in the United States. And one thing that has really struck me is Trump is using drone weapons just as much as Obama is, and no one is outraged by it. Maybe because there's so many other things to be outraged by, I'm not really sure, but that, you know, that the number of drone strikes, especially in North Africa, has gone up substantially in the past four years. And like, that hasn't even made a notice, like barely in any of the American media. So part of this is, um, yeah, like, you know, there's like so many factors that are really beyond kind of individual points of control. And yet, nonetheless, are sort of catalyzed at these moments. And again, I want to come back to human action because I think it's what's central, but it's, I'm not talking about individual actions, right? This is collective actions and it's the sum of our actions, which is much greater than the sort of choices that I make. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I do think if we want drones to do something different that's not warlike, right, you know, we have to address the ways in which the United States, for example, is, you know, predicated on a giant military and, you know, the military budget just keeps on expanding and expanding. Um, and it's not just drones, right? All the artificial intelligence research that's being done in the United States, much of that money goes back to the DOD. Um, and so if you're a scientist working on artificial intelligence, chances are you're getting money from the Department of Defense. 
Um, and even if you think your project is going to do something different, um, those technologies are going to be shared with the U.S. military. So, the your story of, of um, uh, the Denny plane is really um, interesting in as a kind of uh, um, precursor or a, or a um, preview of the of the story of Abraham Karim and the and the Predator, where you where you again have an uh, been someone who who originally was an aeronautical engineer in um, Israeli uh, military industries, but like was also an enthusiast and a hobbyist, and that's why the the Predator um, works the way that it does. Um, I wanted to uh, there's a there's a question that flows on nicely from um, B A Miller in the chat. Um, which uh, picks up on this question of artificial intelligence and its relationship to to drone technologies, and it's just what do you, what do you think about um, about AI integration into um, drone technologies? And perhaps you know the, there's the inf now infamous um, Project Maven initiative um, involving Google, um, and given that its intention is to remove the human drone operator, do you think this um, will affect public uh, intervention or um, encourage a, a stronger public response? So I, I don't, I mean, again, I, it was really uh, moving to see so many so many Google employees um, protest against this. And again, I think this is one of the examples of the ways in which collective human actions can transform the course of how these projects are happening. Um, I also think there is no such thing as artificial intelligence. So um, yes, you could remove the human operator in various different ways, but you still have to create a program that relies on a set of questions or a set of assumptions. And those are all going to be determined by humans. Um, and so I, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think this idea that you would have a completely autonomous system, it, it, it imagines that you could totally replicate a human being. Um, and how are you going to replicate what a human being does? Um, well, you have to codify all of that. And someone has to make the decisions to decide what gets codified and what doesn't get codified and how to, how to, how to do it. And I think if we think about it, not as like, it's either run by humans or not run by humans, but that all of these things, you know, human operators, as I understand it, don't have a lot of autonomy about what they're doing either. They are running a set of programs that have been given to them by their officers and their commanders as well. You know, if they don't do the job, someone else is going to do the job for them. So again, we might already wonder about what kind of choice is possible if we're in a military regime where everything is codified according to these kinds of ideas in the first place. Um, and I'm not a... I, I mean, I, I think we need to trouble and question what technologies can do, but I also imagine that there might be ways in which artificial intelligence could be really useful. So um, it I might be a really terrible thing as well, right? So I mean, I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think there are things that machines do better than humans do, and there's things that humans do better than machines. And so I think there's probably certain things that could be automated that actually might you know, if, if our goal is safety, make things safer. But here again, I come back to the ways in which human values are already implied. Like if safety is our goal, who's defining what is safe for whom, under what circumstances, mm -hmm. right? And, and those are all parameters that are already being set up by the military and already fit into their set of like military ideals. And so, you know, the difference between the human operator who has to follow the safety protocols and the machine that has to follow the safety protocols, like the person I want to change is like, who's writing the protocols and, you know, 
who, who are they responsible to? Like, how do we make those people accountable to a public, um, right? How do we make them answer to what they've been doing, um, the question of war crimes, right? It's, it, I think those are, um, the bureaucratic institutions are the ones that I want us to hold responsible and to challenge um, and, and to sort of, in some ways, let go of this debate of whether it's manned or unmanned. I don't think that's the most important question. I think the question is, right, like who's setting the rules and how do we intervene in that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I, observing where the technology seems to be shifting in this particular area at the moment, um, it seems in some ways that, in fact, the, the move is less to take humans out of the loop, so to speak, as to reduce the agency that the human has within the loop. Um, and so, you know, whether it's human on the loop or in the loop or, um, or somewhere else, um, when more and more aspects of, of the processing that happens is, is undertaken by, um, you know, algorithmic uh, tools or machine learning systems or whatever, um, the, the human is presented with a narrower field of choices perhaps or with a lot of things predetermined. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, this is right. Like the, this, this necessity of stepping back from, from and looking at the system um, well, it's also the question, Michael, who determines, for example, who's on a kill list? Right. Right. I mean, again, like, it's not the operator, it's not the algorithm, it's the, like, it's the president, it's the the head of the military, it's Congress, it's, uh, it's the legal system that supports it, it's, you know, the allied countries that enable this to still happen, it's, you know, countries that let American drones continue to fly in, in air, right? Like all of those things are, are separate from this question of like, what is the man or woman or non-gender identified person in Creech mm -hmm. doing um, when they're operating a drone system? So I, so I do really think, yes, there's something salient about this question of, you know, what is artificial intelligence doing? But like, why is this the what the military wants in the first place, right? Like, who's running those programs? And um, you know, this budgetary constraints is often what people will tell you. So the ways in which you know the the enormous cost of personnel. So we want to lower our personnel costs. So we're going to make it automated but it never actually is automated and you continue to employ tons of engineers, contractors and others who are producing these systems that are supposed to automatically replace, you know, American forces or personnel. And, you know, we can think about how this is being replicated by uh, Amazon, you know, other industries, right? And we imagine that Amazon is going to deliver everything by drone in the next five years. But in the meantime, there's like a massive labor exploitation happening. Uh, I see it every single day in my streets in Washington, DC, where tons of contract workers, gig workers are the ones who are running around delivering packages for people. Um, and we have this imaginary that this is happening automatically or will happen totally by machines. But for the moment, it requires a massive amount of labor, uh, underpaid labor um, and, um, you know, and coronavirus, everyone, you know, everyone just orders through Amazon and that's how we're getting all of our goods. Like this is, I think, I think that's the huge change, not the sort of artificial mm -hmm. intelligence.
Um, so, you know, on this theme of the of the sort of larger structures um, and, and systems that are in place, um, Chris Agius has asked, um, in, in those earlier, in your, in your research into the history, um, did uh, collateral damage figure in those past configurations of drone vision? And is there a shift that's happened in um, sort of the permissible killing practices between um, past and, and, uh, and present, I suppose? So um, thanks so much for this question. I may not have been clear enough, but most of the early drones were targets to be shot at. Right. So they so again, I think this is what's really interesting to think about, like the even the imaginary of the drone as a weapon that can could could, you know, do damage or collateral damage. Like that was not how the drone was imagined for most of the projects that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the name drone here is significant. It right. It was like a bee without a stinger. Right. So the drone was actually. Um, this, you know, pretty wimpy pilotless weapon, you know, pilotless plane that you would shoot down that a number of engineers experimented with, for example, when they turned it into the American kamikaze to try to use it as a weapons platform mm. and as a way to drop bombs. Um, but this was in World War II, right, where the amount of collateral damage was totally massive already, right? So, um, the American Kamikaze was flown for 46 missions. Um, 20 of those drones crashed. Uh, 14 missed their targets and six hit their targets, right? So, and no one really commented on those numbers because like that was actually pretty much what was happening with, you know, conventional bombing at that particular time. So again, I think this whole idea of Right. So in the aftermath of World War II, with the devastation that was wrought by aerial bombardment, that's when we really start to get a different sense of how um, to treat aerial bombing and the, the new sets of rules that emerge. Um, that emerge. And, and so that there's a whole different set of ideas later on. But those drones that are being used in cold, the Cold War, they were all reconnaissance drones. Um, so, of course, they're going to be tied into targeting systems. They were taking pictures of areas that would later be targeted. But there was this dissociation between what the drone was doing and the bombing missions that would later happen. Um, so, so I think it's worthwhile just to think about how this particular framing of the drone and what it does is actually very specific to um, the sort of post-1992 uses of the drone mostly um, and the ways in which this I think is part of the rhetoric post-Cold War whereas in the Cold War it was really wrapped up in this rhetoric of you know uh, national protection you know preventing the spread of communism globally it, it really was understood in a, in a, in a different sense and, and the, we see all of the geopolitical projections projected onto the drone and those no longer make any sense because we are operating under a different set of geopolitical assumptions at the moment. 
Um, thank you. Um, yeah, Chris has just added in the chat that she was um, she had to take a call earlier, which was part of why she was asking the question. So she missed part of the talk, but um, she was sort of thinking of, of um, early attempts to drop bombs in in you know pre World War One um, and and those early targeting um, conceptions. But um, I think um, so, yeah, I, they were trying to target, but the, the idea of collateral damage, like and it's in in World War Two, there were active strategies to drop bombs on civilians because they thought they were going to win the war faster that way. So to what extent people will actually admit that this was what was happening, it's often, you know, just described to the Germans as dropping, you know, they were the ones who dropped bombs on civilians. Um, so so, so there, there's a whole set of like what is imagined through the projects of bombing. Um, Karen Kaplan in, in Aerial Aftermaths talks quite a bit about the sort of first colonial missions associated with bombing. Um, and, and again, the early bombs don't work very well. So, so the, the drones from 1911, or the, sorry, the aerial bombs from 1911, 1912, 1913, I mean, in comparison to things like chemical weapons and you know, the massive devastation that was wrought through all kinds of other means during World War I, that, you know, that, was, that was a really different scale and people were thinking about it in a really different kind of way. So, I mean, I, I do think, that the ways in which we imagine these terms as like somehow decontextualized from the moment which they're operating in, the different moments really remind us that, you know, every, every war is this ongoing action, um, the violence is ongoing, um, the devastation is ongoing, and, and, you know, the terms and the ways in which we're talking about this and the technologies um, there's a different set of geopolitical projections in all of these sort of different moments. And I think that notion of collateral damage, um, particularly the ways in which it's being used and adjudicated, remember, remember the lack of collateral damage supposedly is what justifies the American drone operations. So most American military personnel continue to say, well, you know, yes, the drone kills some civilians, but it, you know, if we were using, uh, if we were using regular bombers, they would kill a lot more. And so this is sort of the most utilitarian form. Uh, if we want to escape those utilitarian logics, right, I think it's like really important to dissect the ways in which these are contingent to a certain historical political moment. Thanks, Kate. If folks are interested in collateral damage more, um, I encourage people to look at um, my UNSW colleague, uh, Jessica White's work. Um, she's done a lot of really interesting stuff on, on collateral damage. Um, I wanted to jump to a, um, to a question from um, uh, Catherine Brimblecombe-Fox, um, who's asked um, about the word vision uh, in terms of drone drone vision, and yeah. and is vision uh, the wrong word in this context? And so she's pointing out that the human vision is not just about seeing with our eyes; it's also dreaming, wondering, the mind's eye, imagination, and so on. And those aren't possible for for drone imaging technologies. And and I think Catherine kind of prefers this term of of drone imaging rather than drone vision uh, to to demarcate this this difference. Well, I like that a lot. Uh, although, of course, I think it's all just human vision. So when the humans say it's drone vision, I think it's interesting to imagine what the humans imagine that the drone is visioning. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I mean, I do think that there is that double layer of projection, right? It's right. We, we imagine that the drone doesn't 
right? Like, what do we lose if we think that the drone doesn't have this capacity to imagine, dream, wander? Um, as, as I sort of showed in many of the different histories of these drone aircraft, there's all kinds of crazy human projections that are happening on them, right? The drones are imagined as villains, they're imagined as kamikazes, they're imagined as part of the American West. They're, I, I mean, I, I think the more we recognize that so much of this is imaginaries um, and, and wonder, you know, and, and that this is always connected to human vision as well. And that, that if what most of the drone is seeing is actually a fantasy, how does that trouble um, the objective, you know, militaristic lens that is claimed for it? And how does that problematize these questions of collateral damage, um, right? So, I mean, I think that the drone is a tool of fantasy, absolutely. And, and you know, that maybe all of its visions are fantastical, so. So we've got another uh, question from, from uh, B.A. Miller, which I think is um, uh, perhaps a nice, a nice place to, um, to, to, uh, start to draw things to a close, um, which is about what what do you think about drone, a drone abolitionist approach? Do you think that these kinds of technologies um, should be made illegal? Um, and I'll add on, on top of that, or or illegal or out of bounds in certain contexts. Do you have a view on on all of that? I mean, I think we need an abolitionist approach to society first. I mean, I, I think to the extent, right? And I mean, I think part of this is just like, where where does our money go? Where where are the hands of power? If a drone abolitionist approach goes along with defunding the military and defunding the police, then absolutely. But I mean, just getting rid of drones is not going to, that's not going to do it. And, and again, there's a lot of other really deadly weapon systems that are being used. Um, and right, and those we haven't been able to make illegal. So, and I mean, currently we're still using tear gas in the United States and right, mostly against protesters. Um, so I, I do, um, I mean, I, I, so I, I think if we wanna change what drones are doing, we need to change the structures that are making them um, and the ways in which power is operating through them. Um, and and I, I, I don't, Right, I, I think that, um, I, I mean, I think one thing to look at or a struggle that I am, was have been inspired by and I think was really powerful and profound was the struggle in the 1980s against atomic weapons, right? Which was an amazing sort of global movement um, that really helped to sign the sort of um, the test ban to, to not only ban the weapons, but to ban all forms of testing, even underground testing. But it's kind of scary that that work, you know, may get lost, right? I mean, Trump is talking about testing nuclear weapons again. Um, Russia is talking about testing nuclear weapons again. And, and again, like, that was an amazing struggle that I think created a form of abolitionism for a technology that is clearly absolutely horrific. Um, and I think we should be reminded that that was made by the global struggle of a lot of activists and people. And, and so, I mean, I think we need to continue that activism. And if drones are part of that, then absolutely, that let's do drone abolitionism, but it's not for me about the drone. It's about these, you know, relationships of power and, and that that's where we need to direct our energies. 
Um, and, and I think sort of do the hard work. Um, I think it's actually a lot easier to say, oh, let's just get rid of this technology and then we'll be done. We still have a colonialist vision. We still have the histories of settler colonialism. We still have the legacies of police. We still have the legacies of, you know, imperial militarism. It, it, like these are, these I think are the, the challenges that um, we need to continuously work on. Thank you so much. I think that is that call is actually a, a perfect way to to end things. Um, Kate, so thank you so much um, for joining us and um, and for the rich discussion and the really thoughtful um, and passionate responses. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon, and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.